Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Stay Curious, a podcast where we want to create diversity in thought and not division in community. I am your co-host, Matt Fisher, back after a long break. Um, I'm the creative director here at Hill City, where um, we'll pretend that we're recording this. It's really John and I in our <laughs> houses still, because for COVID reasons. Um, but uh, I'm here with my co-host, pastor of Hill City Church, Mr. John Wagler. Wags, what's going on, man? Yes, sir. Um, just want to be back together. Yeah. Um, over this. I miss everyone. I know, even like little things that we've been able to do, like even like having everyone for staff meeting has been so refreshing. And then we had that little prayer thing up in Church Hill where like 120 people showed up and it like made me emotional just being there because I was just like, gosh, I just miss like praying with people and singing with people and and laughing with people in this way. You know, we've had obviously little pockets of community like in the midst of this, but... Need to put that mask on and head down to Marcus David Peters Circle. <laughs> I've seen several worships. I've seen the, the, I, we walked up on there the other day with the kids, and there I noticed a couple of people with their hands in the air, and I walked over, and there was just gospel yeah. coming out of the PA. Yeah. We got to get back well, together before that just becomes church for me. <laughs> I know we're, we're getting close. We're getting close. Um, cool. Well, today we are super excited to um, have a guest on. Um, his name is Art Burton, and I will let him describe a little bit more about what he's about. But um, yeah, we just um, wanted to continue to highlight Black voices in our community, um, and Art is a is an activist. So, um, and and just uh, an amazing sort of mind and a pair of hands here in in the community so we are going to cut over to our interview with art burton um john any thoughts before um we we kick it over to that interview yeah i mean i think it's so important for us to continue to engage this conversation and look at different angles different perspectives um you know we're going to keep doing this a lot you know, and looking at different systemic issues. And I think it's important to just keep engaging that um, while also understanding uh, the spiritual components to all of this and um, staying Jesus-centered on all of this and how critical that is to this whole conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And before we do head over to that interview, um, my creative director brain has to tell everybody that, you know, audio is is tough when everybody's on the phone. So um, art's on the phone and uh, we're doing our best to make it sound good. So bear with us um, because this is a fantastic conversation. So here we go. Hey, everyone. So we are here with our friend Art Burton. He is the executive director of Kinfolk Community. Um, And he's also the operational director of an organization called Community Unity in Action, both right here in Richmond. And uh, I'm going to let Art himself kind of tell you guys what a little bit um, of that is about. But we're just super thankful that that we have Art Burton here today. And uh, Art, tell us a little bit about Kinfolk Community and Community Unity in Action and and sort of what those uh, organizations address here in Richmond. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me here. Um, so uh, Kinfolk Community uh, is a nonprofit that I'm executive director of, and we work on the transformation of public housing communities in, in the city 
Um, and my focus is on teaching uh, residents of the community how to become self-empowered and self-sufficient and how they can transform their communities uh, by themselves. Uh, um, my other role is operational director of, C of Community Unity in Action, which is a, grad which is a leadership roundtable for social justice leaders that are um, activists or grassroots organizations or nonprofits. Uh, and what we use community engagement, we use urban agriculture as a community engagement tool to address health and economic disparities, which we believe drives uh, the violence and disruptive behavior that is occurring in our communities and in our schools. Um, and we're focused right now, we have a 42-member uh, uh, coalition of nonprofits, grassroots organizations, and, uh, uh, and our focus is the East End, which has the largest food desert in the city of Richmond, and specifically MLK Middle School and Armstrong High School, which accounts for uh, over half of the kids that are referred to the police department by the school system come out of those two schools. Hmm. Okay, yeah. awesome. Uh, go ahead, John. I was going to say, Art, for um, those that are kind of just jumping into this idea of a food desert and maybe have never you know, heard about that before, um, can you explain... Uh, what exactly that is and how that kind of manifests itself within the context of a community? Well, um, take, well the technical definition is any community that does not have a grocery store that is capable of delivering uh, fresh food products in a certain uh, quality of food within two, a two mile radius of their home. Um, okay. In this city, uh, from 1920 and even today, there was there has been an effort to push poor people out of the center, center core of downtown. And as a result of that, uh, many, many uh, descendants of enslaved Africans that lived in the downtown area ended up in public housing. That public housing ended up in the east end of Richmond. And... Uh, because most grocery chains don't see it as economically viable to ha put grocery stores in those areas, uh, those communities are solely dependent upon um, corner stores, and those corner stores don't sell fresh vegetables, don't sell certain uh, bread products, and so th those uh, families uh, don't get access to some of the food products that other communities get access to. That makes sense. Um, so uh, one thing that you mentioned when you were sort of describing the work you do is this idea of sort of community self-reliance and, um, and teaching people to, um, you know, urban agriculture, I think, uh, is something I want to hear a little bit more about. But when we talk about community self-reliance for those communities that you work with, um, if they're dependent on, you know, as you mentioned, larger grocery store chains um, 
to, you know, open up near them in order to, to get food. I guess my question would be like, what are they trying to become self-reliant from? Like, what are the current things that people are sort of forced to depend on in those areas that do, that come up short for them? So, um, you know, the, we, we, people always say, well, how do we get to this moment of, you know, worldwide protests around police brutality? Um, and what happened was in this country, uh, most of us sat at home and we witnessed most of the systems that we relied on just pretty much break down, whether it was the educational system were forced to shut down, your healthcare system, we found out, didn't have the capacity to take care of everyone. Um, it was a free, we have a for-profit healthcare system, the banking system. Uh, even when the government wanted to give small businesses money, uh, we found out a lot of communities didn't have banks, didn't have relationships with banks. These conditions have been present in poor black communities in this city for 50 years. And so when we talk about empowered, we're talking about empowered to, uh, to have a first class education empowered to set up um, uh, 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 co-ops for food distribution, uh, empowered to even bring a bank in your community or even an ATM machine. We're talking about communities that don't even have ATM machines in them, communities that don't have spaces to even set up businesses, small 500 to 1,000 square foot spaces where businesses can can go into. So um, when we talk about healthcare, where we found uh, old people and black people and brown people disproportionately affected by COVID because we have these longstanding health conditions and because we have a healthcare system that is for profit, a lot of these families don't have, you know, they don't go to the doctor every six months or once a year. They only go to the doctor when they're ill. And so we have to show them, um, you know, you talk about strengthening your immune system. Well, that comes from eating certain foods and doing certain things that they don't have access to. So we show them how to grow those things. We show them how to can those things, how to freeze those things. Um, so that they, so not, and we show them how to eat those things because if you don't, you know, if, if, if you don't, if you don't see an eggplant in the store and you don't eat eggplant, so you don't know how to cook eggplant, you know, and so even something that we, most people would take for granted, such as pita bread. Um, I've met children who had never eaten pita bread before because they've never had pita bread in their store. So. So all these are these are how we teach people how to be educate people to teach them how to become self reliant and and empowered to act on their own. Hmm. All right, um, tell us a little bit more about your history um, in activism. How did you when when did you sort of get started um, thinking about some of this stuff in your life, and how did it lead you to? Um, you know, food, agriculture, and and housing as as the the kind of work that you were going to concentrate on. Well, my father was an activist, so I've been an activist since I was eight years of age. I have been exposed 
Um, he was the executive director of Youngstown, Ohio Community Action Program. And so uh, he had marched during the civil rights movement, black power movement, worked on welfare rights issues, housing issues. Uh, he came to Richmond in 1970 as the executive director of the Urban League, excuse me, associate director of the Urban League here in Richmond and uh, hung out with Curtis Holt and those at black men and women who worked on uh, obtaining political representation for black people in the city of Richmond. Uh, most people don't, we, we seem to forget that uh, black people in the city of Richmond didn't even have political representation until 1977. And that was court ordered and forced in the city. And so when we talk about black political representation, it's just about 50 years old. Um, and so he worked on that. Um, we, we had always farmed. We were from Chesterfield County. It was something that, that, you know, it was part of our ritual as a family. My grandfather, um, uh, we have a, a small uh, homestead. It's, we've been here 129 years at this particular homestead. Uh, since 1896. So it's like genetically in me to be a farmer. Um, and so um, I actually, but I actually got into social justice when it was time to enroll my daughter Olivia in school. And we had moved into Highland Park, which was the poorest community in the city of Richmond and still is. Um, and found that the quality of schools were just absolutely horrible. And so uh, then I was approached by some activists about uh, the, the school she was actually supposed to go to was built on a old landfill and had methane gas going into the school. And they had been trying to get the school closed and get a new school built. Um, and that was in 19, not, not about 99. And um, I started uh, advocating for the school and uh, have been an activist every, every, from like that moment on, I have been a community activist working on um I spent uh, seven years working on educational issues. Um, build schools now was led to effort to get the school, first schools built in the city. Um, then went on to uh, dealing with economic issues, wrote uh, the strategy for community wealth building, which became the Office of Community Wealth Building, uh, and then went to, uh, uh, wanted to, uh, took a training on living an extraordinary life. What does an extraordinary life look like? And decided that an extraordinary life for me look like taking all of my skills, talents, and gifts and going into a marginalized community and demonstrating that we had the ability to transform communities on our own. And um, that work led, out of that work was born kinfolk community. So that was, that's been my story for the last uh, 20, 20 years. I have a a 20-year record of, of social justice work in the city. Um, are for, for what should people do? So, like, there's you've given us, obviously, a lot of great 
history, a lot of uh, incredible awareness to what's happening in our city. And um, what would you suggest for folks that are going to be listening to this? Hey, like, here's an entry into this topic. Now you've like heard some things, like what are some things that people can do to actually engage and help make a difference in your efforts? Uh, you want to start with the easy stuff or the tough stuff? Let's say there's two people we're talking to. One of them needs uh, the, the, the shallow end, and then the other one doesn't mind diving into the deep end. Maybe what's, what's one thing for each of them? Okay, well, let's talk about um, this is a conversation about systemic racism in this country. That is what this is a conversation. And so the question becomes, what can people do to tear down systemic racism? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, here, this is the part where everybody gets upset with me. So if people get upset, I'm, I'm accustomed to it. We're, um, we're used to it. Don't worry. <laughs> right. Um, in order to tear down systemic racism, Systemic racism is held together by the construct of race. It was created in the state of Virginia where we decided that we would determine the humanity and value of people based on the color of their skin. And so ultimately, if we're going to get rid of racism, people have to stop looking at themselves as being both white and black. And they have to start seeing each other as human beings first. They have to stop defining each other uh, and describing each other as black and white and take the time to have that conversation with each other to determine who each other are. So if you're not willing to uh, in white privilege or you're in your white privilege, then, you know, you, you really, you know, then we're, we're just, you know, black lives does matter, but the concept of black denotes that you are inferior to some other person. So in many ways, the concept of Black Lives Matter is doubled down on systemic racism. If you're tearing down, if you're, if you're white and you're tearing down statues on Monument Avenue, you're only tearing them down because you have the white privilege to tear those statues down. And so if ultimately, you know, so you know, in a weird way, while you think you're helping you're really doubling down on the very thing that holds the system together. And so that's the, then that's the tough, you know, and you can't have that conversation in the middle of a riot. I've had so many of my social justice friends, when we get to the point, when I get to this point of saying, well, are you willing to give up being white? They say, Oh no, I'm not willing because that's where the power is. It's in it's in that construct, and so that's you know um, I, I say I, I'm, the, the the line I'm working with now is there are only two kind of people in the world. 
the human beings that manage and control the world and the human beings that create civilization, you know, those are the only two kind of people here in this world right now. And so if we, and we should be coming together to figure out how, hey, you guys run it, we built it, how do we rebuild it and manage it in a way that everybody has the same value? Um, as far as the work, I can give you, I'll stop there and then I can tell you a little bit about some of the work that's going on towards those goals. But I think that's the toughest piece that we're going to have to come to. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Matt, you have something? Go ahead. I just had a curiosity. You know, I know um, obviously how food deserts manifest itself in our Richmond community is obviously clearly um, more towards the black community. Um, in other areas, obviously there's, you know, primarily like say the Midwest, I know there are food deserts, you know, that impact poor white communities as well. Are the same dynamics there in both scenarios or is it different in Richmond or how does that play itself out? Well, I mean, the, the thing you gotta understand in Richmond, the only black people who are poor in Richmond are black people. Okay, I tell people there are no poor white. I mean, the percentage of poor white people in Richmond is is two percent, three percent. Okay, mm-hmm. and so you know when we so when we talk about the intention of racism in this city, um, you know, uh, pe- people, you know, people say, well, why would they burn up a bus? Well, we have, you know, my organization we had filed a federal civil rights law complaint around the pulse and how unfairly the the route was drawn and how intentional it was in drawing a route that was primarily being used to 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 improve transportation for one specific group of people in this city and took service away, took bus stops away from other communities that we then had to go back and fight to get some of those routes back and some of those bus stops back. And even today, there are people in poor communities who have to walk farther now to get to a bus stop uh, to accommodate the, the pulse. Uh, people, they don't understand, well, why would the people... Uh, break up the windows downtown. Well, the reality of it is, Pastor, if you were black in the city, you didn't eat in any of those restaurants anyway. Because you couldn't afford to eat in any of those restaurants. So when you walk by those windows downtown and you looked in those restaurants, you looked at other people eating in those restaurants. Because in this city, um, uh, the, the descendants of enslaved Africans most majority the people I work with majority live on eight thousand dollars a year. Um, the the average income is forty thousand, which is one third of what other what what the other half of the city earns, which is one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. And so, so that's so that's the that and, and this is intentional in terms of you know. Uh, I mean, and we've been very intentional in our policies and our practices and our planning to plan our cities that way. 
Uh, and so that's that's the difference between uh, Richmond. Um, it's also why we have a special responsibility um, in the taking down of statues and the things that we do to to have a real conversation because we're not just victims. We are the creators of the construct of race and the racist system that the entire government, this, the system of, of rate institutional racism that we created here and codified in law and actually separated from the country and led a war, which was the most violent war in the history of modern mankind. Um, we all, because all that was created here, we have a responsibility to show the nation and the world how to dismantle the racist system in a way that allows us to all uh, raise the bar of our humanity. And so that's why, you know, so when, you know, we, uh, I, I'm, I'm asking people to be very thoughtful and deliberate about the actions that we're taking towards uh, bringing down statues. Now, folks in the social justice committee hear me saying, be slow about taking, taking them down. I'm saying, I'm not saying we should be slowly take them down. I'm saying we have more, we have more, we have more, our responsibility is greater than just taking them down. We have to redefine who we are as a city, what symbols now represent us. If those, they do not, they're a hundred year old symbols. What are the symbols for the next hundred years? How are, you know, how are those symbols going to define who we are? Uh, how are we going to design those symbols? How are we going to build those symbols? Um, and are we going to do this in anger? hatred, disgust for each other? Are we going to do it in celebration of each other? And those are some big questions I think we have to decide. And I think we have an obligation to this country to, 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 to figure it out first and not just pull everything down and act like that's some kind of victory and then both sides stomp off angry with each other. That's good. Thank you, Art. Um, so one thing I, I'm hearing you say that I hadn't really thought about until, you know, we're sitting here talking, because um, I think for me, you know, again, as like a white guy um, who, who has been out, you know, demonstrating and and um, and has tried to be present and learn. Um, I hadn't really thought about the idea that Richmond or maybe the Commonwealth of Virginia in, in general, but Richmond specifically, does have sort of a special importance in this. I guess we always tend, I always tend to think of Richmond as like a scrappy little city that's like, you know, not, not a New York or an LA or a Chicago. And if we get some attention, that's always great. 
hopefully it's for good things. But um, do I hear you saying that because of history and because of the history of the slave trade, the history of dehumanization based on race, do you think that Richmond on the national and maybe even global stage has a special responsibility or a special role to play in what's happening right now? Oh, absolutely. First, you know, the first slaves landed in Virginia. Those laws that were created, you know, the, 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 the major architects of the Constitution, Declaration of Independence were Virginians, uh, that, you know, uh, that those, those, those documents codified slavery as an institution in this country and ultimately forced us uh, to go to war. Uh, the the policy systems and practices that were created uh, were studied by and imported throughout the world. Whether you know the eugenics movement uh, was studied by the Nazis, uh, Leopold used them in Belgium, the British in South Africa. Uh, so you know this this sisters. Uh, there were only two states in the country at the time, they bred slaves, and that was Maryland and Virginia. Uh, over 3.5 million were bred. Um, it was a his, uh, horrific system. Um, the city itself was primarily built, uh, as well as the nation's capital, off of the backs of, of enslaved Africans. And so, yeah, we we have a, a very, well, you know, uh, why is Robert E. Lee so important on Monument Avenue? That's, he, in my opinion, he's the epicenter of 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 racial injustice, and you know that's like the the zero milestone of racial injustice. And so, and and I've often said until until Lee comes down in Richmond, then we know you know it doesn't matter what anybody else does in the country. Um, even now, you know, when we look at politics, national politics, the state of Virginia plays a huge role in national politics. Uh, being a political activist, I know that anything that shakes the city of Richmond, shakes the, the state capital, shakes the nation's capital, and is seen across the world. So, yeah, we have a, we have a very, very important and special role in uh, dismantling systemic racism and dem- and and leading and demonstrating the, to the world how this can be done in a way that brings us all together uh, and and demonstrates uh, what future humanity is going to look like. Um, that's great. Uh, that thank you for those words. Um, I think you know we had one, maybe one more question, unless uh, something comes up as a result of your answer to this. But um, for John and I, uh, as church leaders, and for a lot of our listeners who are attendees of of various churches, but of Hill City, which is the you know the church that we um, right. are on staff at. I would love to hear, you know, obviously in the civil rights movement and in the in the attempted dismantling of of racist systems, there is a history of church involvement from obviously Dr. King, Fannie Lou Hamer, James Cone, um, 
you know, even even the work of of Malcolm X like had a faith element to it, um, but more to his Muslim faith. What do you see now versus as you were growing up with your father? What do you see now as the church's role in um, the work that you're doing, both in in the general sort of um, fight against uh, racist systems, but also specifically in the work that you're doing with food and and housing? Um. So. So what? So inside of the. Uh, Community Union Action Food Justice Corridor. We have what we call uh, the Urban Farm Ministry, uh, where we are working with uh, African American church leaders in the East End to talk about the importance of of how we use food as a community engagement tool. Uh, and we ask them to do. Uh, three things. We asked them, one, to identify what food justice programs you already have in your church. So whether it's uh, a food pantry, education programs, a farm you run, what what are you doing in your church? Um, we asked them to set up a what we call a health education training classes. We call it Medicaid 101. Uh, for senior citizens, what to discuss uh, their health care needs, do they have added the, the right insurance, um, and then what kind of things can you do to address chronic illnesses that you have? Because in the city of Richmond, uh, African-American people live 20 years less than their counterparts. Um, and then the third thing we asked them to do is start looking at social enterprises that they can create in urban agriculture because we have to address the economic inequality and we, and, and we want, um, and we see urban agriculture as a way that churches can create enterprises to begin that conversation about, um, on, on economic enterprise and health inequality, um, in this state, uh, a person can can up to I think it's I want I know it's three thousand dollars worth of products without a commercial kitchen, and so we're encouraging churches to not you know to set up social enterprises around urban agriculture. One to show their their con- congregation how to do it, and two to use it as a mechanism uh, for the for the community. Um, one of the big other big issues that we're addressing is most people, most poor black people don't see where their churches are engaged in their lives. Mm. And so, and most church leaders have the attitude that people should come to the church. And most people in the community have the attitude that the church should come to the people. And so we have this uh, spiritual standoff going on in our communities. And so we're trying to um, encourage the church through its outreach to extend um, the spiritual blessings in the communities by simply 
engaging in a different kind of way, which allows me to knock on your door and simply ask the question. And I yeah, I knock on 50 doors. I'm just asking one, we call it community case management, not Art Burton, knock on one door, ask the question, how are you doing today? How do you feel today? What's going on with you today? You know, and ask the question, hey, what is, what is it? Any, what's, what, what is it you want in your, I ask people two questions. What do you see that needs to be done or changed? What are you willing to do to help change it? Mm-hmm. And then say, well, okay, let's pray that that happens and let it go. And then come back the next week and do the same thing till we begin to build relationships with each other. You know, we give, we leave about bag of food there. Say, so here's some food for you this week and we'll come back next week. And so I'm asking us, I'm asking um, the partner organizations, church organizations, individuals in the food justice corridor to adopt, um, adopt individual families. Um, as an example, we had a big, you know, the kids that are riding are riding because they don't know what to do. So we invited them to the farm site we had in Gilpin. And about 50 people showed up to work at the farm site. And suddenly all the organizers said, oh, my God, we, go? we got too many white people here in the hood. And I said, well, first, now you're looking at them as, as white people. But what you have to understand is we're building a new community. And this new community has to represent a different set of values. And one of the things that helped get us into this condition is the loss of intellectual capital and resources. So you can't look at, if you look at people as simply being white people, you you forget the fact, no, these are human beings who are coming to build a new community and bringing their material and intellectual resources into the community. And the thing that is most needed in most of these, we've got plenty of human resources, but the intellectual and material resources are what we need to build a new community. The social workers, the doctors, the lawyers, the engineers, the architects, the independent businessmen, the things that most white communities would take for granted every day. You know, you would find those things within two blocks of your neighborhood. In a lot of these communities, none of those people and services exist. And so that's, that's, you know, the communities, we have intentionally segregated and alienated and isolated and marginalized communities now we have to build communities not based on people's skin color, but certain values. And in our organization, Community Unity Action, we're led by the Reverend Dr. Charles Shannon, and we've identified 18 values that we live by that he says to us, our first responsibility as leaders is to act, walk, and treat each other in a way 
that demonstrates to the community the way they should act, walk, and treat each other. And so if we're not going to build communities based on spiritual values, integrity, um, uh, or operational unity, building trust and relationships, that's, you know, that's how people need to show up in the community. Now it's just, oh, you know, once again, if you're only there because it's, it's you're on the basis of white privilege, then you, you're not tearing down a racial system. If you're there because you saw the need, because George Floyd's death <clears throat> caused you to recognize that we needed to have more humanity in this world, that we needed different values in this world, then... Um, and you and you're coming because you want to demonstrate those values, that humanity. That's the kind of city we should be talking about building. Awesome. I know that's a lot. No, that's great though. We appreciate all that though. I think it's really good for people to hear um, not only different perspectives, but and. Uh, different angles to all of it too. And um, in particular, I think it's great to hear um, people talking about the social construct of, of race and how we should be seeing each other as well, which is so critical in all of these conversations that we're having right now. Yeah, and I know it's tough. I mean, I mean we've been trained our entire life to, to, to see, you know, to, to vow, you know, we've been trained in this racial construct of black and white and, you know, I get right now we're, we're all out here saying Black Lives Matter and that and we, it's a great thing, but it's also us limiting the possibilities of who we are. And so we, we and it's not something we're going to end in a day. You know, even in this conversation, you hear me struggling with the language, one African-American, black human beings, you know, it's a lot for us to figure out. It's taken us 400 years to create this mess. We're not going to walk out of it in 14 days, but I think as we have the conversations with each other um, and come to an understanding, um, you know, maybe it's my grandchild that gets there and I'm just building the foundation. So, but I, I do think we have to at least consider the idea of us all just being human beings, you know? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, our, we cannot thank you enough for your time and for your experience and for all of the work that you've put in, um, throughout your life and, and over these last 20 years specifically, um, here in Richmond. Um, Thank you so much uh, for being here with us. Uh, we're going to post links to your organizations, um, both Kinfolk Community and Community Unity in Action, um, so that people can go research that more and, and get involved um, uh, if they are moved to do so. Um, Art, yeah, thanks and, again. and there's food justice work, housing work, prison reform work, uh, education work, healthcare work, um, We'll have a conversation, hopefully in the future, about some more specific things going on in the city. Um, but there's there's plenty of work. Um, but remember, everybody, the work kind of starts with our hearts. Okay. Mm, that's a Thanks good word. Thank you so much, Art. Thank you so much. Thank Art. you so much. All right. Have, have a good day. Same to you.
All right. Thank you. Cool. Well, thanks so much to Art Burton for joining us today. Um, a, a Google search of Art Burton Richmond will bring up a TED Talk that he gave and a couple, quite a few other links uh, if you want to learn more. But we'll also be posting um, links to his stuff in um, our Instagram, which is at Stay Curious Cat. I'm sorry, at Stay Curious Pod on Instagram, um, and then in the description of this show. Um, if you have questions, comments, concerns, quips, quotes, or questions, you can send them to stay curious at hillcityrva.com. Um, thanks, y'all, so much for joining us. We'll be continuing this conversation um, for the foreseeable future uh, as far as just um, these ideas of sort of racial injustice and, and, um, and community building and just different perspectives on what is going on in our country right now. So thanks for joining us. And until next time, remember to stay curious.